Welcome back to Love in the Time of COVID, the podcast that provides tools for navigating conflict and deepening relationships as we weather the shelter during the pandemic. I'm Stephanie Matthews. And I'm Dr. Chelsea Wakefield. Thanks to all of you who are sending in questions for us. If you want to submit questions for a future episode, you can leave us a voicemail at 501-492-9552. And please be patient. There are a few rings before you get to leave the message. You can also email us at chelseawakefieldpodcast at gmail.com and find us on Instagram or Facebook at COVIDLovePod. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast if you like us and give us that five-star rating to help other people find us on iTunes as well. Chelsea, so excited to be talking to you again this week. How have you been doing over these last few days? I've been doing well and uh, kind of shifting and adapting to what people are going through, which seems to be evolving. So it, it's, it's going well. Good, good. Are you um, noticing anything kind of now that we're in sort of week six of this lockdown? Um, are you kind of noticing any shifting in people's, you know, approaches to their relationships or just in your own life, how you're kind of feeling at this point in this pandemic? Well, the focus last week was on implementing a a real tight focus on kindness and compassion for self and others. And people seem to be doing that. And there's also a theme that's emerging in the people that I've been working with and really wanting to deepen their relationships. And, you know, something that um, we're going to talk about today is communication And that's something that I imagine you're working with a lot of couples on. If you have this desire to deepen your relationships, then we have to know how to communicate with each other. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. Well, I wanted to start off with a voicemail that we have from a listener who is asking about just this new routine that he and his wife have fallen into here um, over these last few weeks as their relationship has kind of shifted. Hey, Dr. Wakefield and Stephanie, thank you all so much for the podcast. It's been um, really helpful to give me some stuff to, to just think about as we're all we're all dealing with this stuff together. Um, I guess my question is, uh, when my wife and I got married, um, we really wanted to make sure that we didn't let our marriage turn into like a business relationship, right, where we, we make sure that we divide up responsibilities just to make sure that everything gets done. But sort of in this time where I'm trying to work from home and trying to watch our three-year-old and she's, she's actually in healthcare, she works in a nursing home, she, so she has to go to work for a few hours a day. It has completely turned into that, okay, let's divide up responsibilities and figure out what we need to do to make sure that everything gets done for the day. And so, you know, there's been a lot of talk about showing ourselves compassion and mercy. And I think that's a little bit easier for me when it comes to work and that kind of thing, because, yeah, we all know we work too much. We all know we focus on that side of things too much. But when it comes to some standards we tried to set for ourselves relationally and being in a moment where we can't really operate like that anymore, it's just a little harder. And and I don't like what I'm seeing out of us, but also don't know how to adjust, um, how to, to move out of sort of this business relationship where we just make sure everything gets done and sort of back into what our normal routine is. 
And so, anyway, just wanted to see if you had any thoughts on that. Thanks so much again. So this voicemail reminds me of something that I'm saying to people, and that is that they shouldn't go to any kind of catastrophic conclusion about this time. when I talk to people, I'm always referencing the inner self system, our inner cast of characters, and the different ages that they are, including the importance of the vulnerable child. So in this time when people are working and they're trying to figure out how to manage their own children and juggle a bunch of stuff, um, it's very, very likely that they're moving heavily into their responsible selves. They have a lot to manage. And so One of the dangers in long-term married relationships, particularly if you have children, is it begins to feel very task-oriented. And that's what I'm hearing in this call-in, that there's a concern that their their business selves, getting down to business, taking care of business, have taken over. And one of the things that long-term couples really need to keep alive and that they long for is their playful selves. It's something that when we're courting, when we're in our early dating relationship before we settle down, get a mortgage, have kids, we have a lot more playfulness in us. And we have time for playfulness. We don't have nearly the responsibilities that pile on after we have all, you know, jobs and mortgages and bills and kids and all those kinds of things. So... We have to be very intentional, and that's the important word, is to be intentional about asking ourselves, what inner state am I in right now? And I can guarantee you that if you stay too long in your responsible selves, you're going to start to get irritable again, because there's just those kids inside of us have got to have some let up. They've got to have some playfulness, some levity. And also the thing about being in responsible mode with your partner is that it really gets in the way of the kind of connection that feeds us. And so figuring out ways of pausing and connecting and getting present to each other with intention, you've absolutely got to do this intentionally, is very, very important. Uh, one of the things, if, if somebody's going out of the house and then coming back, is the landing routine of that person shifting states from being out in the world into being home. And I actually think that hugging till relaxed is a great, great way of doing that because when we come in and we've had all these responsibilities, particularly if we're in a healthcare environment, which has got additional stressors on top of it, Uh, And of course, sometimes when people come home from those environments, they want to take all the clothes off and maybe even take a shower. But there's got to be a point when they shift from that working self into their home relational self. And so just being intentional about that and figuring out ways to get present, get grounded, get here is really important with eye contact, with tender touch, uh, with things of that sort. And I would imagine that for the person, in this case, you know, the husband is at home working from home while also managing the kid, that that adds this additional layer of stress because work is kind of always there. So they're Mm -hmm. not entering the house from work. They're there with work and with the kid. And then their inner child is supposed to come out at some point with all the juggling of the actual child's. So how can that, you know, maybe at the end of the day, you know, the wife comes home, they can start putting this into practice. They have the hug until they're relaxed. She can go and change clothes, do whatever she needs to do. 
And then what might that look like once the kid is off to bed? Like how can they kind of break out of that talking about what needs to happen tomorrow to take care of everything and into sort of a time of reconnection? That would require them to downshift. So downshifting is something, it's a skill that people can learn. It has to do with really getting into your body. And again, when you get into that body, you might find out that it's got aches and pains, that it's filled with anxiety. So that can be hard. Um, I think that in this time, particularly for a couple that is, you know, sexual connection can be incredibly important in times of stress. But sometimes when people are stressed, they feel less sexual than usual. And so just taking some time to downshift and hold and engage in tender touch that is not necessarily driven by the goal is to have sex, uh, but, but just by the, you know, to, to get present, to get here, to convey warmth, affection, presence, comfort. People need comfort right now. And so, you know, we might just do an entire episode on sexuality because it's such a big topic. But um, allowing the downshift and realizing that you can't just get there with a snap of the fingers, that you've got to actually kind of move there. And again, you've got to do it with intention. You have to tune into how revved up you are and then figure out what you need to downshift. Do you need to do a meditation app? Do you need to exercise on the exercise bike for 20 minutes? Do you need to listen to music? Um, I'm really big on dancing. Um, one of the things that my husband and I have always done when we get stressed out, and it's the quickest thing I know to shift his state, is if we're in a bad place, uh, for some reason we always used to do this in the kitchen, but I would just grab him and start dancing. And it just, he would immediately start to giggle. And it was an immediate state shifter. That would shift me, and then our son has these interesting memories of us tangoing up and down the hall when he was growing up. Because <laughs> that was one of the things that we used to shift our states and to be playful. Is just We didn't do it for a long period of time, but we might just do it for five minutes. And it just helped us to access you know, those two people who were playful, who were lovers, who were friends, who knew how to connect on a different level than all the responsibilities. But every mm-hmm. couple has got to find their way of downshifting. And um, so those are, those are a couple ideas I have off the top of my head. That's great. I love I love the dancing. I don't know if this is a um, couples therapist secret, but you know, Esther Perel recently talked about how you know she dances too to kind of just relieve stress and um, kind of shift her focus. She said, you know, you can't cry when you're dancing, or she can't cry when no. she's dancing. So yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. I feel it's like this fine is a- to. Yeah, it's fine to dance by yourself, too. Um, mm-hmm. You know, just find some of your favorite tunes and just get moving. It just, yeah. you know, shake off the anxiety. It gets so lodged in our bodies, and we mm-hmm. have to move to discharge all that anxiety. Mm-hmm. Well, and what you're talking about with the downshifting, you know, and the touching, the comforting touches and touch that may lead to sex but also might not, there's a lot of nonverbal communication, going on there, Mm -hmm. right? Like I think Mm -hmm. for me, I'm someone who likes to, or who feels like I need to talk through things. Like if I want to accomplish Mm -hmm. something, then let's talk about how we're going to do that. Mm -hmm. But I'd imagine that you would have 
some really powerful insights into the power of not talking and sort of practicing nonverbal communication with our partners. You know, it's interesting when people are, are dating, they do a lot of eye gazing. They just stare into each other's eyes and they just enjoy taking that other person in. And there's actually some research on this. That there's a guy by the name of Arthur. I think his name is Arthur Aaron, but he did a, a research project a while back that if a couple, even strangers, if they just sit across from each other and gently <clears throat> look into each other's eyes for four minutes, it establishes a deep connection between the two of them, and sometimes people fall in love. So eye connection is very important. Uh, we're rushing around and, and just taking some time to just take that person's hand and to just really look into their eyes and take them in. There you are. How are you? And just slow down. And, and you know, so eye connection is very important. Gentle, non-demand touching is very important. Uh, different people like to be touched differently, and you've got to find out the ways in which your partner likes to be touched. Um, and, and just, um, I think taking time to talk about things that don't have anything to do with going on. I'm, I'm very strong on, we've got to get away from this just all invasive, uh, preoccupation with COVID. Uh, it's important that we stay informed, but we do not need to be watching the news, which is so saturated with it all the time. Let's turn the TV off and let's sit outdoors in this beautiful spring, take a walk, get our minds focused on something else. That's so important. I mean, I just find almost every conversation with friends, with my husband, just shifting into COVID talk, you know, and mm -hmm. I think we're all just tired of talking about it, but it's just so natural to shift into that, you know, that being the conversation topic. Um, so how do we kind of get out of that? Like, what are some ways that we can communicate with each other where we really are using this time to deepen our relationships? What are the things that we need to be thinking about if we want to communicate better with our partners? Most people, when they think about communication, they think about talking. I have a strong emphasis on listening and listening really deeply. And what I mean by that is often we have to listen beneath the words. This is very, very important. Uh, in working with couples this past week who were stressed out, I was pointing out to the listening partner that the complaints that they were hearing, they weren't really listening underneath to not only what was being asked for, but who was speaking. And so here again, we go back to the inner cast of characters because it's an important thing to think about either when you're talking or when you're listening. Who in me is speaking? Is it my critical parent who's lecturing and telling you how you're doing things wrong? Is it my vulnerable child? Is it my scared child? Is it my playful child? Is it the clear-thinking adult who wants to problem-solve but isn't not, is not necessarily that interested in connection but very interested in tasks and responsibility? Who in me is speaking and who is listening in my partner? Because if we're not attuned and if we're on two different levels, we're, we're going to have some difficulties. Uh, if one person is, is speaking because they want to engage and connect and the other one is in task mode, the response that that person that is trying to engage is going to get 
is not going to be very satisfying. It might even be, we don't have time to talk about that. We've got to get some stuff done. We've got laundry, we've got lunches, we've got all this stuff that we have to do. And so the question of, of who is speaking and who is listening, under every communication is some sort of unconscious intention. Uh, so again, why are we talking? What are we seeking? Are we trying to discharge anxiety? Are we trying to solve a problem? Are we seeking help, support? Are we seeking connection? Are we sharing something that we're happy about? Are we informing and exchanging information? And we need to, sometimes we need to cue our partners about what we're wanting from them. Uh, there's a very classic issue that goes on often between men and women that are talking to each other where women are trying to just express their emotions and their feelings and men are trying to fix it and come up with a solution because men are so fix-it oriented. Uh, mm -hmm. It's a little bit of a stereotype, but it tends to be more true than not. So when I'm working with men and women who are having this kind of a difficulty, I'm often saying to the female, it, or let's just say the person who's talking to talk, share emotions or just process emotions, and the listener, they have to cue that person. I'm not really looking for answers or solutions. I just want to talk this through. And then that ha helps to set a context for what this conversation is about. Uh, likewise, when we're moving into task mode, let's just kind of send a cue. Let's say, okay, we got to get some stuff done. Let's talk about that now. Um, or if we're, uh, you know, just sending cues about how we want to be responded to by the other person. And if the two of us can get used to sending and listening to those cues, it's helpful. But deep listening underneath the words, particularly if those words are filled with anger, frustration, blame, shame, all the things that we tend to do when we're not really in touch with what we need under that. I'm always asking people to go underneath if they're attacking or blaming or shaming. What is the need underneath what you're saying to your partner? And when people can get into the need, um, so for instance, with the caller uh, to express uh, what they're experiencing to a partner without alienating that partner would be to speak for themselves and explain what they're experiencing. So they might say something like, you know, I'm recalling our conversation when we were first deciding to get married that we didn't want it to turn into a business relationship. And I've just been noticing in this time of COVID that it starts to feel more and more businesslike. And my the part of me that's longing for connection is really hungry for some, some connection. And so is there a way that we can somehow shift and do something for me to experience being connected to you right now? So that's a way of expressing that where there's no blame or shame going on. It's not like, you know, you've been really um, kind of businesslike with me lately and I'm just not very happy with it. But to mm -hmm. express, to really speak from, from your own stance and not to blame, shame, accuse, mind read, do any of those things with your partner. You've just forgotten all about me. You know, you're just so busy getting things done. It's like, I'm over here. You've, you know, I, I must be unimportant to you. And mm -hmm. I'm not saying that this particular caller is thinking or feeling that, but that's the kind of thing that people will say when what they really want is a request for connection. Yeah. And then how does the listener, how should the listener respond or listen? Like, how do we listen well? 
Well, we listen well by, first of all, becoming aware of how likely it is for us to fall into the feeling of being criticized or fall into um, defensiveness because we sense that we're failing in some way. And this has a lot to do with our early life and how and our formation in terms of whether we were raised in households where we were constantly doing something wrong or we were constantly getting in trouble or being criticized by parents or not being able to read cues and getting into trouble that way. So that that is in that underlay of a person's vulnerability. And if the listener can become more aware of our tendency to see something as um, a suggestion when it might be a share um, and, and really get more conscious and aware of how we misinterpret our partner's communications. That's personal work. And then to, if we sense that our partner is trying to get something across to us rather than just sharing for the sake of sharing, you can ask. You can say, so, you know, is there something that you want from me about that? Um, if you feel like you're being criticized, which you might be on the receiving end of someone who is speaking critically, you can say to them, you know, I'm feeling really criticized here. Is there a way that you can ask that or I don't feel blamed? So you can ask that person to reword things. Mm. Um, you can sit down and have a conversation about how you like who, how you would like to talk to each other differently in the future. And again, you know, we'll post a couple things on the blog uh, about little tips about how to communicate. But what's incredibly important is that the talker needs to speak for themselves. They need to be as self-aware as possible. So I always talk to people about begin within before engaging without. And so if I begin within, I have to ask myself, what is going on with me what is my intention in talking to my partner? What is the best way for me to achieve the desired outcome? Um, and what, what do I need and want? And can I express that cleanly and clearly without it turning into a demand? And so it become, can become a request because nobody likes to be on the receiving end of demands, mm -hmm. uh, particularly with somebody who's supposed to love us and be a partner rather than a dictator or a, <laughs> uh, an employer or something like that. Sometimes partners start to they start to treat each other like employees. You know, mm -hmm. you haven't unloaded the dishwasher. When are you going to take care of that? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, actually, it's really to me, it's amazing how many disagreements occur over the dishwasher in couples therapy. I just can't even tell you how much it has to do with how to load the dishwasher, how to unload the dishwasher, when it's too full, how much soap to put in. It goes on and on and on. Is um, it really about the dishwasher, though? It's not about the dishwasher. It's about my way versus your way and how we figure out how to cooperate. Um, but it tends to come up. It's just every time I hear somebody talking about the dishwasher, I always I have to just suppress a giggle because it's, I feel like, oh, there goes the dishwasher thing again. Um, <laughs> but so, you know, listening, um, if just some people chronically feel like they're being criticized when they're just being requested. So you have to look at whether you're oversensitive and automatically defensive, and then just start to work on your defensiveness. Don't trust that first instinct that, oh dear, I've got to defend myself. 
Um, and look a little into your history to find out why you might feel that way. And see if you can, if it's your vulnerable child that's rumbling in your history because you grew up in a house where you were always in trouble or in school you were always in trouble, or your last relationship you were always in trouble. It's really about getting into the now. Who am I dealing with now? What are you about? Are you a critical person? No, you're not. Maybe my history is filled with critical people, but you're not a critical person. So you get updated into the now. You talk to your partner. You, you give each other information about the most effective way to communicate with you. Um, another thing is the when. The when. So if we think about who, what, where, when, why, how... Uh, sometimes delivering information to somebody as they're heading out the door to work or they're trying to uh, downshift from the day, it's not a good time. So we have to learn about timing with our partners and when it's a good time to sit and talk with them about something. What's the best time to convey information? Might not be late at night before they're about to fall asleep. It might be first thing in the morning. How do they want that information conveyed? Do they want it written intact on a little sticky on the refrigerator? Or do they want to sit down and talk about it once a week? Do they want to get a shared calendar? Just lots of cooperative conversations about what will work best for you and for me. And how can we work this out into a system where we don't have to struggle about it? Mm-hmm. And all of this, you know, I mean, I can't imagine that any couple, even with all of your guidance, can do this perfectly. Like sometimes we just choose the wrong time and the conversation does not go well and we need to, you know, wrap it up or we're in danger of just having probably going into things that we don't need to be talking about or saying things that we'll mm-hmm. regret. So what do you say to people who are they find themselves in a heated conversation and it's just, you know, it's completely unproductive at that point. Good question. So it is really okay to table things and to say, you know what, we're not doing well. Let's both calm down and then let's return to this later. Now, the return to it later is important because sometimes people just drop things and avoid it forever and then nothing ever gets resolved. But it's okay to table things and to say, you know, let's both think about what this is really about for us and what we want. What is it really about and what do we want? And then let's come back together and have an exchange. Again, you know, not a demand, but a request. And then, you know, with requests, sometimes people say no. But the question then is, is there anything that would make it possible? Or is there any part of that that's possible? So don't just give up when somebody says no. Also, make, make certain sure you're not badgering them with the same question because people don't like to be badgered, you know, ask things over and over and over again. Children are so good with this. They, it's like the Chinese water torture, you know, they just keep at us, at us, at us, at us, you know. Can't I have that piece of candy? Is it time for the candy now? When is the candy coming? You know, they, they'll, they'll ask over and over until we kind of just collapse and give in sometimes because we can't stand it anymore. And partners can do the same thing. They can, I call it badgering. It's like repeated questions. But um, again, you know, once we travel from our thinking brains and our problem-solving brains into our threat brains, which is our amygdala, 
Once we shift from the thinking brain into the threat brain, which is our more reptilian ancient brain, once we're in threat mode, everything that's coming in is feeling like a threat and looking like a threat and sounding like a threat, which is why we've got to calm down sometimes and table it and come back when we're calmed down and we're not in threat mode. But um, it's important to notice, um, John Gottman actually talks about flooding when he's a famous couples therapist. And he talks about if you notice that your heart rate is going up significantly and your blood pressure is going up and you can feel this sort of pressure building in your head, you're probably not going to be in a productive conversation because you're flooded. And so you need to just take a break, calm down, get all that adrenaline out of your system and then return to it. So the returning to it is what's difficult for people because so often what I find is that people begin with blaming and accusing and then they're off to the races again. They're just in another conflict cycle because then the other person is defending against the blames and the accusations. We need to constantly go back into curiosity and trying to find out what does this mean for the other person? Why is it problematic? What do they actually want? What are their ideas about solutions? Just keep going back to asking more questions, asking more questions. And I'm glad you brought up the point of curiosity because you started to touch on that last week and how it's this capacity that we develop. And I just wanted you to talk more about this idea of capacities and how curiosity can be something that, you know, maybe we're not doing it well right now, but we can, we can learn how to become more curious. Yes, becoming more curious is begins by becoming aware that it's important. And again, you know, the quality of our lives is determined by the focus of our attention. That's the Cheryl Huber quote that I love so much. The quality of our lives is determined by the focus of our attention. So if we begin to actually focus on curiosity and really put it front and center, the idea that the minute I'm upset, I need to ask a question instead of just spouting off with a defense or uh, a a counter complaint, which is the thing that partners do a lot when they're in trouble with each other. I need to move to a question. Uh, Ellen Bader, she says, we need to be curious, not furious. Curious, not furious. So if you can remember that little phrase, when you start to get angry, curious, not furious. So move to curiosity and start asking questions. So in the asking of questions, which, by the way, we're not asking attorney questions. Attorney questions, when someone is on the receiving end of a lawyer question, they know they're on the witness stand and they're being either interrogated or they're being led into a corner somewhere where they don't want to go. So you have to look at your intentions about asking questions because some partners are very, very sensitive when the questions start being asked because uh, they start to feel framed. So mm-hmm. curiosity has nothing to do with interrogation, nothing. <laughs> it has to do with a genuine desire to really understand what's going on and seeking to know the partner. And here again, we've got that idea of, of crossing the bridge into the other person's world, really entering into the other person's world so you can see out of their eyes based on their experiences and their history, which can only be known and understood by having some deep conversations about why is this an issue for you? And eventually, if you are in a space where you are safe to talk to and you're actually truly curious and inquiring, uh, that person will t- will give you information. They'll say, well, you know, when 
when I was growing up in the third grade, the following thing happened. And ever since then, I've been upset about whatever it is that's going on here. And fill in the blank, you know, and there's always history behind things that we're reactive about. So learning about somebody's history is not only a way of understanding them more deeply, but it's also a way of helping them to raise that into their consciousness. And it's the beginning of being able to separate out from an automatic reaction that is rooted in an experience from long ago. So I'm going to say that again because it's so important. It's one of the things that people go into therapy to do, and that is to find out their, about their formation. How did I become the person that I am today? And um, am I still operating out of early decisions that I made or reactions from a long time ago that need to really be retired? I don't need to be that person anymore. I'm not a third grader. I'm not a five-year-old. I'm not a 10-year-old. I'm not interacting with my parents. I'm an adult with resources and awareness and subsequent ex experiences that told me that I can navigate life and manage things. So when a partner actually acts in, in the state of deep listening and true inquiry, they allow the speaker to begin to discover things about themselves. And this is a huge gift of love. Mm. You know, I was thinking about that old saying that familiarity breeds contempt, you know, and a lot of what we're talking about today is kind of how to discharge or how to navigate conflict even. But for people who might just be experiencing boredom, you know, curiosity can be really hard because we feel like, we know this person, right? Even though we don't fully, because there's always more to discover. Um, and as you've said, we're always evolving, even if we're not growing, we're changing in, in different ways. So how can we, I don't know, kind of shift as a, as a listener, kind of shift this, our mindset into there is more to learn about this person. I don't know everything. And how can we be curious when we might be experiencing boredom? Boredom is one of my favorite topics because it is, boredom is born from living out of assumptions and assuming that everything as it has always been. Boredom means that we actually, it's a complete, it's the opposite of curiosity. And curiosity is actually the remedy for boredom, actually engaging this other person in a way that we haven't engaged them in a long, long time. So when people are bored with each other, it means that they haven't really encountered each other in a long time. And they're just operating almost like the person they're interacting with is a picture in their head, a fixed picture. Like, I know all about you. I know what you're going to say. I know who you are. There is always something new to learn about that person. And when you begin to enter into a discovery conversation, just asking something one level deeper will open up a whole set of topics. Um, I'm always amazed at, you know, when you're married for a long time, your, your partner starts to tell a lot of the same stories. And, you know, you'll go out with friends or something. You've heard the story 50 times, but the friends haven't heard it. And mm -hmm. Sometimes my husband will tell me a story I haven't heard, and I'm always just so thrilled by that and excited. <laughs> but even if it's a story that I've heard before, if I ask him the one level down deeper question, 
Like, what was your favorite part of that experience? Or why was it so meaningful? Or how do you think you're different today than you were when you had that experience? Or what did you conclude out of that experience that you think you carried forward? Or, you know, who did you share it with? Or, I mean, there's so many questions that you can ask about an earlier experience in someone's life that you've, you know, we have these sort of, um, they're almost like speed dial stories or they're, that we bring forward, you know, I don't like that because of such and such. And it's a, it's a, it's the reader's digest version, you know, the 10 word mm. summary of that. Um, but it's not really, it's not really the totality of what that is. And sometimes, again, this act of interacting with each other, of getting to know each other more deeply, it moves people. And it happens in the space between us, in the space between us. It's a very mysterious thing. But I've watched it countless times in couple sessions where people feel really disconnected, but suddenly they get present with each other. And they're looking in each other's eyes and they're having a conversation where it's not just the words that are being exchanged, but the felt sense, the, the feeling into each other is happening. And, and one person is really looking out of the other person's eyes and connecting with them and attuning with them, and the other person is doing the same. And it's almost as if you can feel something grow and be born between them. It's when, you, when I'm working with people and this ha is happening, I always feel like I'm in the presence of something amazing, a miracle, almost sacred. And I just pause and stop and just let them go on because I know they're in the midst of something wonderful that is going to change the whole feeling of their relationship. But it has to do with listening deeply enough and moving into this inquiry state, being present, and being in the now. You know, they're talking about then, but you're also in the now. So those are some thoughts about boredom. That's really helpful. And, you know... Um, I know that this topic of conversation or of communication will continue to come up because it really, whether we're talking about, you know, sex or children or just any major parts of relationships, I know we'll probably come back to different communications um, tools that we need to reference. But I wanted to ask you one more piece, which is the where. I recently read, you know, like the bedroom is probably not the best place to bring up tough subjects, you know, like there has to be a place where you're, you can identify this space that's free from conflict, like a conflict free zone. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts about choosing where to have maybe uncomfortable conversations? I actually think that walks are a good time to have conversations, particularly if you can walk for a while, which means you're moving your body, which is helpful for anxiety. And if you can find the combination of a walk and a bench where you can then sit down and look into each other's eyes and talk a little bit more and then walk, um, that's really helpful. Um, it's, it kind of depends on your house. This idea that, you know, you shouldn't have a deep conversation in the bedroom. It depends on your house and how many people live there because it might be the only place where you could have some privacy. Mm -hmm. So in terms of delineating um, the, the bedroom as a place where we have arguments, place where we try to make love, place where we rest, uh, it's you, 
if you talk about the purpose of the conversation and you you kind of put it in a compartment, that can be helpful. Just the the creation of healthy compartments, because we you know we think about compartmentalization sometimes as negative, but it can be positive too. Uh, in other words, we're we're in here, we're sitting on the bed because the house is full of kids and they're all out there and there's no place to talk, including the back porch. Uh, can't take a walk because who would watch the two-year-old? Things of that sort. Um, we're having a conversation th- to solve something or to figure something out. But this is different than when we're shifting states and shifting selves because, again, when people, when you master this capacity to be in a different aspect of your psyche, a different inner state, it is one of the key things for um just self-awareness, and it is very, very important in sexuality because you have to be able to shift states from your responsible, get-it-done, thinking-of-others self into your embodied, sensual, attuned presence, being in the now self. And that is the capacity that a lot of people don't really think about or know about is how do I shift states? Um just related to that, I remember there was an old commercial about Calgon bath beads. And it was, the phrase was, Calgon, take me away. And you saw this picture of this woman in the bubble bath. And that is a picture of somebody who is trying to let go of the responsibilities, let go of trying to be a mom, uh, and shift mm-hmm. states into just her more relaxed being state. So... If you have to have a conversation in the bedroom about something, just make sure that you you put a bracket around it and you say, this is about, we're trying to solve something, we're trying to work through something. And then if you can actually employ the, the communication techniques that we'll talk more about, one of the key ones again is speak for yourself, listen deeply beneath the words. If your partner is blaming and shaming, invite them to reword or come from a different place. And be solution-focused rather than complaint-focused. You're always looking for the, this is another one of my six love capacities, creativity. And if it's a circular argument that you get caught in, look for the exit ramps. What do we actually need here to move out of threat response into a creative solution where we're not stuck on this hamster wheel going round and round and round all the time? Those are some great takeaways, Chelsea, and we'll make sure to leave those on the blog too so that listeners can maybe post them somewhere <laughs> like okay. I'd need to on the refrigerator yeah. um, in case the dishwasher argument comes up. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to have, maybe if we just stick be curious, not furious on all of our refrigerators, we can yes, that get would somewhere. Yes, that would be really good. <laughs> That's right. We need some stickers or magnets. Um, well, I've just, I've thought that this has been so helpful. I mean, you know, Gerard sits here next to me and watches our audio and stuff and there's We've both been doing a lot of good nodding, probably in recognition that these are some good takeaways for us to uh, put into practice here as we Great. just have more time together, you know? Yep. Um, and and thank you, Gerard, for all your help with the technology. <laughs> yes, we're so grateful for that. And we're grateful for our listeners. And I just wanted to, you know, give our other listener who submitted an email a heads up that next week... We're going to address her question more deeply and talk about differences, how to navigate differences in our relationships and touch on love languages, which I know is a very um, 
popular and well-received topic. So, and you have a lot to say about those. I know you do, Chelsea. So for our listeners who want to leave us a message um, or some feedback, we're at 501-492-9552. You can also email us at chelseawakefieldpodcast at gmail.com and find us on Facebook and Instagram at Pod. Thank you so much for today, Chelsea. It's been great. Thank you. 